And one of the interesting things, or one of the sort of assumptions that our culture has when it comes to religion is that there's an inherent distrust, I think. And the last couple of weeks have shown why that is. Whether it's the atrocity in Paris, the bombings in Beirut, refugees from Syria running from those who are either of their same religion or of a different religion, trying to get away from religious people who threaten their life. And as a pastor, I feel the sting of, of that critique. That a question I hear frequently is, how can religion be a force for good in the world when religion often is very exclusive? If, if I think my view, my religion is right and other people are wrong, how is that not going to lead to divisiveness, to dissension, and in the, the absolute worst case, to violence and terrorism? And just, you know, I think that's a fair question. That I've seen the, the reality of the, the dangerousness of religion on, on a smaller scale when it just it comes to, to self, self-righteousness. Right, where my religion proves I'm right, either because I'm smarter or have the right background or know more or have the right perspective that you don't have, and therefore I'm, I'm better than you. That's why often the most religious people do the most sneering or the most thumbing their noses at other people. And so the, the critique of religion is clear. If you think your religion's right, if you think your view of the world is right, you're going to look down on other people. And then, of course, there's the far more significant problem of, of terrorism or religious violence. Those who think that because of their religion, they have a right to kill in God's name. That you take a survey of the world that, in which we live, and it's not hard to see that religion has a lot of problems and is creating a lot of problems in the world in which we live. And maybe you, you might expect me to say, as, as a Christian, as a pastor, Hey, Christianity, it's not exclusive, and we're therefore absolved of all the problems that come with exclusive religion. But I can't say that because Jesus is one of the most exclusive people that exists. Christianity is not a a broadly inclusive religion. Jesus didn't end up on a cross because he never disagreed with anybody and nobody ever looked at him and thought he was problematic. You don't get crucified when you're just a nice guy trying to do nice things. But I do think Christianity is different here. That the way Christianity is exclusive is is different, I think. And that's one reason why I'm excited to spend the next several months uh, launching into the Gospel of Matthew. We're sort of beginning with the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, the bookends to the Bible story, to get into why it is that Jesus came, why Jesus even was born in, in the first place. And then we're going to spend a long time in the, the Gospel of Matthew. So this week we're in Genesis. Next week it'll be Revolution, Revelation. Um, then we'll be in Matthew for a long, long time. And I like the idea of doing that because I think Jesus is, is a very misunderstood figure, especially on this question of exclusive versus inclusive. He's very exclusive. And yet, if I had to answer the question, why did Jesus come? Especially in light of Genesis 12, where we're going to be this morning. It would be that Jesus wants for God to have a big family from all people for all people. God wants a big family from all people for all people. And we see that answer in Genesis 12. It's where we're going to start this morning. And yet when you you read this story, the narrative in Genesis 12, it it begins very weirdly. That God doesn't seem to to go the, the way I would go at least if I was going to start a people. The God here in Genesis 12, he's calling the wrong people in the first place. He makes a pretty unfair demand. 
And then he, he makes an outlandish promise, almost unbelievable. And so that, that's how we'll look at Genesis 12 this morning. God makes, he calls the wrong people, he gives an unfair demand, and then he makes an outlandish promise. But before we do that, I wanted to start, um, as we start a series in light of the whole world, I want to start by praying um, for the whole world. Our world is, is a mess in many ways, um, and the Psalms especially speak um, to, to the mess of the world, and especially wicked people who do violence to the helpless and to the poor. Um, so I want to start there this morning as we begin um, this series for God's heart for the world. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded that this week, in the last couple of weeks, that um, the wicked are still very prevalent around our world. It's why there are millions of refugees fleeing their home. It's why Paris uh, mourns the atrocities of the bombings and shootings. It's why Beirut is mourning right now, God, and, and especially because of, of religious people. So God, we pray that your love and your heart for the world would first come through to us, that we would be convinced of your love for every last person on this world. But we do also, God, pray against those who would do violence, that you would not overlook the helpless, that you would be their hiding place, that you would snare the wicked in the work of their own hands, that you would not forget the needy, and that the hope of the poor and the afflicted would not perish. God, you're on your throne in heaven. You have endless capabilities and, and possibilities at your feet. And God, we pray and we plead for you to act and intervene in a world of violence. God, we ask all these things in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Abraham, the story of Abraham, begins with, with God calling the wrong person. And so this morning we're in Genesis 12, which means there's 11 chapters that happened before Genesis 12. Genesis 1 and 2, everything was, was awesome, the way it was supposed to be, until in Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit, things fall apart, um, and they begin to fall apart rather rapidly. In Genesis 4, you have the first murder, the first killing, not for something heroic or brave, but because a brother was jealous of another brother. Then in Genesis 6, we're told that God looked at mankind, and mankind was only doing evil all the time. Not a good assessment of the world. And then in Genesis 11, it gets worse. With the story of the Tower of Babel, which maybe you're somewhat familiar with that story. That story always kind of weirded me out. What, what's the big deal about building a tower? Like, why? Uh, we do that all the time now. We build really big towers. But when you read the narrative... One of the things they say is, we want to make a great name for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. So essentially what they're doing is they're building this really big tower as a temple to worship themselves. And we may think, well, they're ancient people, they're weird. But just, just imagine you go out back to your neighbor, and your neighbor's building a giant tower. And you go out, and you're like, Bill, what are you doing? That's, that's, going, that's a high tower. And Bill says, because I'm awesome. And I want to build a really big tower to show that I'm awesome. That's what I want to do. Do you think that guy is deranged and you'd want to move, right? That, that would be a very troubling... So, and that, what God is saying in Genesis 11 is an entire city is doing that. Building a tower to show their greatness, to worship themselves. And so the world is, is unraveling in many ways. And then Genesis 12 comes along to change the story, to change the narrative. With just a few words. And the Lord said to Abram. But if you're reading Genesis 1 through 11, especially the last half, the last few verses of Genesis 11, where we read about Abraham and his family, you're going to immediately raise a red flag and say, why, why Abram, who will become Abraham? Why, why this guy? 
This doesn't seem like the right guy for, for two reasons. One, he's, he's the wrong religion. That if, if you read Abraham's father's name, his brother's names, it would appear to us that, that Abraham was a part of a moon-worshipping family. They were, they were worshipping the moon. Wrong religion. And then you get this note about Abraham and Sarah. They can't have, they can't have children. Abraham is, um, and Sarah are, are barren. They're infertile. And the irony shouldn't be lost on this. God wants to start a really big family with people who can't start a family. This is, the wrong, this is the wrong person. This is the wrong people. And surely there has to be a better choice than this. And yet, if you read through the rest of the Bible, and especially when we get to Jesus' story in Matthew, you'll find God continually makes this mistake. He continually calls the wrong people. In fact, that's, that's one of the central themes of the Bible, is that there's actually no right people to call. And so if you want to talk about exclusive, exclusivity of religion, Christianity is absolutely the most exclusive religion. It says everybody's out. No one's right. When God scours the earth in Genesis 12 to find the good people, there aren't any. And when Jesus comes, he'll say the same thing. You can't get more exclusive than that, that, that everybody's out. That's Christianity. But if you think that, that's a problem, if you think religion's exclusivity is a problem, and, and I do think it's a problem, there, there's another problem under that problem, which is that all of us, no matter what you believe, we have exclusive beliefs. Whether you're a Christian and you think everybody's out, or whether you're, you're an agnostic and you're not religious and you think all religions are the same, they, listen, we all have exclusive beliefs. Well, let me illustrate this in a couple ways. When I was in campus ministry at in, in Indiana University, um, the Dalai Lama was going to come and visit um, Bloomington, Indiana. He actually, his brother lived in Bloomington, Indiana, had a, a restaurant his brother did in Bloomington. So actually there was a large Tibetan monastery there in Bloomington. So they were coming to visit us. And, and one of the um, things I did as a part of the campus ministry was meet with all of the religious leaders on campus once or twice a month. So it was all the religious leaders together, all different religions um, to talk uh, about things. And so when the Dalai Lama's coming to visit, this monk raises his hand and says... Um, I think we should have an interfaith prayer rally to pray for peace for the Dalai Lama to come. Before the Dalai Lama said, so we should all go, we should all pray for peace to our, own, to our own gods and ask that God would grant peace as the Dalai Lama comes. Now, as a Christian, we're, Christianity is very exclusive in terms of prayer. You can only pray to God. Um, I can't pinch hit. I can't call a pinch hitting God in to come and pray to him as well. It, it is only God. It's a, to pray to another God is, is considered false worship. It's a serious sin in the Bible. So those of us who were uh, of of a more maybe biblical Christian um, conviction, didn't go to the prayer service. And so the next time we all met as a religious leaders, the monk came and he was, he was angry at us. And actually started, in the meeting, started yelling at us. Now, I don't know if you've ever been yelled at by a monk um, before. My guess is not, because that's not the sort of thing monks are supposed to do. Um, but the reality is, he was yelling at us for being too exclusive, Right? You're being too, so you're supposed to come and be, you're being divisive. We were praying for peace. How could you not pray for peace? And yet, the irony was lost on him. He was being just as exclusive to us as he was to him. Listen, our view of the world says we can't go and pray to other gods. Right? We, you're, you're saying our view is not good and wrong. You're being just as exclusive as, as we are. Or, to illustrate this in another way, a few months ago, our, um, our country passed um, same-sex marriage. So it's, it's legal now, and that's created a lot of tensions within um, rights and who has rights and who doesn't. So, for example, in Oregon, there was um, a baker who said, I, 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 it's against my religious conscience to, to bake um, a wedding for, or bake a cake for a same-sex sex wedding. And so that, that's exclusive, right? You're excluding people when you, when you do that. It's not inclusive, that's a, you're excluding. So the state then has come in and, 
and sued them and fined them well over $100,000. Their business is shut down. It's, it's ruined. They've stopped operating because they can't pay the fine because, they're, um, because they, they wouldn't serve a same-sex wedding. But here's the irony to me. That, listen, the religious view is exclusive. There's no debating that, right? But the state's being just as exclusive. It's saying if you're going to have that Christian conviction or that religious conviction, you can't have a business in our state. They're both exclusive, even though you might say, well, one's ex- inclusive, one includes, one doesn't say you can't do that, one's exclusive. No, everyone has exclusive beliefs. Whether you're a committed Christian or whether you don't believe in God at all, we all have exclusive beliefs. And especially if you're someone who says, well, all religions are exactly the same, they teach the same thing, so they should get along with one another. Well, what you're really doing is saying, because all the religions don't think that, right? As a Christian, I don't think Islam's the same thing. I don't think Hinduism's the same thing. So when you say that, what you're really saying is, all the religions are wrong, and I actually see them better than all of them. Which is actually a pretty exclusive view, because only people who generally are whites and in the West have that view. It's incredibly exclusive. The point that I want to make, or that I want us to take in this morning, is every one of us has exclusive beliefs. Every one of us. The question is not, will you exclude? The question is, what are your exclusive beliefs? What are they? And so Christianity's first exclusive belief is that none of us are right. We're all the wrong people. Right? We're all excluded. That's where we start. And so Christianity then is, is at, the, at the one moment the most exclusive religion and, and yet also the most inclusive religion at the same time because God calls the wrong people. He chooses the guy who can have children and who's in the wrong religion to go and start a new people of God. And if that's true, okay, if we're all the wrong people, and those of us who have called Christ our, our Savior, who are Christians, that means there's no arrogance in the family of God. You're not in. We are not in because we're right, because we figured it out, because we're a little bit smarter, because we, we grew up in the right neighborhood. We're in because God calls the wrong people, and he called me, and I'm the wrong person. And he brought me into his family. It kills arrogance. Which is why, in, in some ways, the problem that uh, the exclus- exclusivity of religion should not hit Christians. Even though it does. Even though we're just as self-righteous. Even though we could be just um, the thumb and sneer our noses at other people. Just as much as anybody. It shouldn't. Because we're only a Christian because we're the wrong person. And God invited us in. So that's where Genesis 12 starts. We only got through a few words. Now the Lord said to Abram. So that's, that's point one. God calls the wrong people. Second, God makes an unfair demand. Look at the rest of of verse 1 with me. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is really an outrageous ask of God from from Abraham um, for a few reasons. One is God isn't very specific here. If you notice, he says, Go from your country to the land I'll show you. So God doesn't even tell him where he's supposed to go. He just says, basically, go that way. Hey, leave everything you know, go that way. The one commentator points out that God's basically just saying, Abraham, I'm going to point you in the direction, and you have to start walking. It's not very specific, but secondly, this is a, this is a really long trip. This isn't just like cross the street. This is go a long way. And so Abraham, he lived in the land of Ur. And, and interesting, we could still see ruins from the land of Ur today. We'll have a slide um, to point out some of the pictures. So there's, those are our ruins from Abraham's day. So this is a real place. This is a real guy, a real moment in history where God said, Abraham, Abraham, go from, 
your land. So as pastors, we were interested. All right, God's calling them to go somewhere. He eventually tells them where to go. And so we were curious, well, what kind of trip is this? So we Google mapped it um, to see what that would look like. And uh, that's the next slide on there. It's, uh, it's 677 miles. I thought it was interesting. It, it goes right through modern-day Syria. So those of us who have been aware of the news this week, Abraham walked through the land that is, is, is torn with war and strife today. But it's a 219-hour walk, which means if you started today, you'd get there just in time for Christmas. This is a long trip. And most of all, God is, is asking Abraham to leave everything. He's expecting Abraham to leave. See, in that day, your inheritance was your land. It was your family. And for God to say, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and go a long way away. I mean, that distance in that day is not like that distance in our day. There's no cell phones. There's no email. There's no cars. He's leaving everything. And today, we may even have a harder time relating to this because right, well, it's not uh, unlikely for us to move away from where we grew up. So I grew up in Indianapolis. I live in Kansas City. Now, it's a pretty normal story. My guess is very few of us in this room actually grew up in Shawnee, um, Kansas. Most of us have moved here from somewhere else. But for God to ask Abraham to do that, was say, basically to say, give up everything. Give it up and go a long way in a place I'll tell you about later. That's what God asks Abraham to do, which raises the question for me, why would he go? Why would he go? That's point three, the promise that God makes to Abraham. It's the only thing that could get you to go. Here's what he says. Here's what God promises to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a a significant promise in a number of ways. I want to just draw, there's three big promises God is making to Abraham here. The first is that God promises to make Abraham into a nation. Right? He's not just saying, I'm going to give you a child, right? You're, you're infertile, you're barren, I'm going to give you a child. No, he's saying, I'm going to, from you, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation. Secondly, God promises to bless Abraham. Essentially, I think what this means is you read out the rest of Abraham's life. Even when Abraham screws up, God blesses him. And you see this. I mean, Abraham does some really terrible things in Genesis. And yet God keeps blessing him. God keeps pouring his love into Abraham's life. God forgives Abraham and keeps working through him. Even though God could have given up on him in many, many, many different occasions. God promises to bless him. And thirdly, this is where we're going to be, be wrestling through the next several weeks. God promises that all the peoples of the world will be blessed because of Abraham. In other words, he says to Abraham, specifically, I'm not just blessing you so you'll have a really great life. I'm blessing you so the world will become a really great world. I'm not just blessing you for you, Abraham. I'm blessing you for the world. The blessing inherent to who Abraham was supposed to be was not to be Looking in a mirror, thankful for all he has, it was to be focused outward, looking at the world, to bless the world. As I started this morning, God wants a big people, a big family, from all peoples, from all nations, that are for all peoples, for all nations. That's why God saves Abraham here. It's why he calls Abraham here. And here is where, as, as a pastor, as a part of Christ Community staff, I, do, I think we have a bit of repentance to do as a church. But we as a church have not done a very good job um, talking about God's heart for 
the nations, for the world. As we become a multi-site church, we've just begun to see this. Is, we've just failed here in many different respects. So as a church, we, we've not talked about enough about this. And so as a church, we spent the last year reflecting on that. What, what would God have for us going forward? What, what should that look like um, in a multi-site church structure? How can we better reflect God's heart for the world at our local campuses? And we've done a lot of work there. We're going to be talking about that over the next several weeks. But we, where we wanted to start this week was for all of us as Christians not to miss the fact that when God starts his people Israel, from which Jesus will come, who will start the church? Us. When God starts this whole thing, he starts with an eye to the nations, an eye to the world. He doesn't start by by hoping that there will be a huddle created from which people can flee from the world into the huddle to stay safe. He starts a family and says, go that way. Leave everything. Because I don't want to just bless you, I want to bless the world, Abraham. And so God's... Heart for the world. Listen, to be honest, this is not just one of the reasons I'm a pastor. It's one of the reasons I'm a Christian. Because Christianity is incredibly unique here. Our message as well as how Christianity has been lived out in the world. When I was growing up in high school, I generally thought Christianity was true. Mostly because that was a religion I grew up in. And it's a church I went to growing up. But it really hadn't impacted my heart thoroughly yeah, I was more a taxpayer into religion. Right? I, I paid my taxes and hope God left me alone after that. It's like I did what I was supposed to do, and then I felt, hoped I had some things left to live on after I paid my taxes. But, but there were a few things over the course of my life that really changed that, and one of those was, was a trip that I took as a sophomore in high school um, to the country of, of Panama. And, and there were two things we did um, there. One was work um, with churches who worked with coffee farmers who, were, um, who lived in, in, in severe poverty, um, as well as went into villages um, into the, the mountains. Um, and again, poverty was, was a real. But we were mostly with other Christians. And the thing that, that, that I took away from that trip was how true God's gospel was to people all the way on, um, on the other side of the world than me. But even more than that, how people in poverty who had the gospel had far more than I had in my life in my wealth in the country from which I came. The gospel was a richer reality than anything I'd ever seen or tasted. I saw it. It took me a trip around the world to see that. And that's God's heart, is that the whole world would know the gospel. And when you, when you look at the world and who are Christians, the truthfulness of the gospel comes out. And yet, that's where I started, the world is filled with significant problems, Right? This week, the debate has been Syrian refugees, people fleeing from their homes. We've been reflecting on the Paris terrorist attacks, the bombings in Beirut. And so look at a world in violence and, um, and terrorism. It's, it may be hard even to so say, why does God let those things happen? Or why does God care for the world? If God cares for the world, why do those things happen? And yet we cannot miss where our story as God's people starts in Genesis 12. It's to be blessed, to be saved to go and be a blessing to the world. So let me end this morning where, where we started. I, I see the exclusivity of religion as a real problem, both for Christians and for, for people who aren't Christians. Though we Christians can be just as exclusive, self-righteous, or um, arrogant as any religious faith there is. But when that happens, I want to make the argument the problem isn't that there's not enough Christianity, or there's too much Christianity there, it's that there's not enough. Look to our own country as an example, right? I think probably most of us would agree that the biggest 
failure stain on our, our country's history is um, our treatments of African Americans, from slavery to Jim Crow to um, whatever. And yet, I think the person who most compellingly argued for change and who made the most change in our culture with regard to, to race was Martin Luther King Jr. And a, a piece of, of writing he wrote that I encourage all of you to read is, is his letter from, from Birmingham Jail. And if you read that, he's especially speaking to white Christians, to white pastors, who are saying, you know, don't stop, stop writing, or not writing, stop uh, protesting, you should be, be quiet, this change will happen, you just have to be patient. And he, his writing back to them was not to say, hey, be less Christian. Hey, you guys are too, you're, you're too Christian, you need, to, you need to dial it back, back and let us know what he says is, hey, you guys, you're not reading your Bibles. You need to open up Amos. You need to reread the Gospels, who Jesus was. He spoke into a Christianity that was failing and oppressing others by saying, more, not less. Look back to Amos. That Christianity, at its core, right, if, if its core of Christianity is that there's no right people, right, there's, that we're all wrong, and yet God calls us anyway, it, it has this dual exclusivity and inclusivity at the same time. And Christianity, listen, it's had its problems, no doubt, in terms of its exclusivity and the way it's treated others. And yet, one thing, one compelling reality to me as a Christian is that if you look around the world, Christianity has spread in a way like no other religion. And for example, if you're, if you're a Hindu, like, like our friends down the street here in, in Lachman, most likely you're from the country of India. If you're a, a Muslim, most likely you're from the Middle East. That's where you, where you live, where you grew up. If you're an agnostic, you don't believe in God. You're most likely white, college-educated, and live in Europe or the United States. But if you're a Christian, who knows where you're from? You could be from anywhere. Take, take a look at this map of world religions, world faith. The red is, is Christians. Um, green is, is Muslims. Orange, Buddhist. Yellow is Hindu. You notice how Christians are on every continent in the world. The predominant religion on every continent. The Christianity, it started in Jerusalem. It moved into North Africa where it was prominent. It moved into Europe from there. It moved to the United States, to, into to North America. From there it moved into the Global South where the most Christian world, part of the world today is South Africa and South America. Not the United States. If you're a Christian, you could be from anywhere. And to me, that's a compelling Reality, the Christianity, it's the only religion that's transcended race, social class, who you are and where you're from. And listen, I'm not going to pretend like we don't have a long way to go. We still do. And yet that is a compelling vision of what Christianity is. The inclusivity of what the faith should be about. The dream God had in Genesis 12 to Abraham, it's really come true. God's people today is really from all peoples and it is for all peoples. And today, the United States, we're having missionaries sent here from other countries because we need the gospel. So what does, that, what does that mean for us as a church here in Shawnee locally? Well, just a couple thoughts as we think about launching into this series about being a people who reflect God's heart for the world. Two things. First, we want to be a people who grow his family, grow God's family. The Genesis 12 should make it clear to all of us, the church, us, we do not exist for ourselves. The Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best, a German pastor who was a pastor at the time of the rise of the Nazis. He said this, he said, The church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating but helping and serving. 
We, the church, we exist because God, like he blessed Abraham to be a blessing, he has saved us to be a blessing into the world. And we must work to that end. That God did not just save you for yourself, to get you into heaven one day. He saved you so that you could, you could share and speak that good news to your neighbor, so that you could pray for refugees in Syria. He gave that news so we could preach the gospel to those who are friends, family, to see God's family grow through our own personal evangelism, but also that we would take that message into all the world, into every corner of the world. And we must work to that end. God wants a big family from all peoples that are for all peoples. So let's grow his family together. But secondly, and, and you can't do one without this. You have to remember how you got into the family. Exclusivity is a problem for all of us. Self-righteousness, arrogance, pride is a problem for all of us. But Christians, when we take the gospel seriously, it, even though it is, it should not be a problem for us. If you look at God's outlandish promise to Abraham, Abraham was the wrong guy, the wrong religion, the wrong um, stock. He was the wrong person. And yet God shows up and says, Abraham... I'm going to give you the thing you want most, a child. I'm going to make a nation out of that child, and the whole world's going to be changed because of what I'm going to do through your family. But I think the greatest promise God makes to Abraham above them all is, he says to Abraham, I will make your name great. Abraham, I will make your name great. What does that even mean? Let's understand that you first have to remember, when I was talking about the Tower of Babel story, that's what they said in, in Babel was, we're going to make our own names great. And yet here God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. What does that even mean? Well, in the Bible, a name is never just a name. It's your identity. It's who you are. It's the core of your being. And so when God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Listen, there's only one great thing in the Bible. It's God. So when God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. What he's saying is, Abraham, I'm going to give you my name. Your name is going to be my name. And I'm going to give that to you as grace. But not because you're better. Not because you're the one right person. But because I call the wrong people. God calls the wrong people and then gives him his name. And so yes, at the center of, of Christianity is this idea that we're all wrong, we're all out, wanting to get in. And yet we can be included because Jesus himself was excluded for our behalf. We get his name because he took our name. We get his glory because he took our cross, right? Jesus came with his eye out to the world, not focused on himself, his eye out to the world and goes to his cross. And that's why in Revelation 22, 4, we're told at the end of, of creation, at the, the dawning of the new creation, we Christians, Christ's name will be on our, our forehead, which I know sounds weird, right? It sounds a little strange to those of us. But what, what, what the point is, is saying your name will be Christ's name. All the, the access, the benefits, the promises that, that Jesus lives into, they'll be yours. His name will be your name. And so at the center of Christianity is Jesus' willingness to be excluded so that all others could be included. And we Christians should be marked by that reality day in, day out of our lives. That we would be people who live for the inclusion of all the world. God's family's desire is to be a big family from all peoples for all peoples. We have a long way to go as a church in how to do that. We'll be talking more even this morning. I'll be inter interviewing Jeff Boss 
to talk a little about where we're headed as a church in this. But let's be a church who lives into this truth. People who have been called, we were the wrong people who yet have been included into a family we never could have earned ourselves. Let's pray.